people of the 6th century to whom this book was written. Yeah. Uh, they're really amazing, uh, interesting conglomerate in ways yeah. of people that uh, these different New Testament books were written to. But more than anything, in the book of Galatians, uh, you'll learn about God's revealed plan to us for our salvation. It's called a soteriological book. There's three of them. And they are books that have a theme which focuses on that topic, salvation. You see, God really has a plan to save us. From the very beginning of our time of history, uh, from Adam and Eve on, the fall on, God set in motion a plan to redeem mankind. The whole Old Testament, in, in, a, in a nutshell, is the history of the nation, Israel. And that nation was brought about to bring a person into the world, the Messiah. And the whole New Testament is a story of that Messiah. The Messiah or Savior to come to the world to save man from their sins, which is what the name Jesus means. And so God has this plan, and he's planned it from even before time began, a plan that would be initiated upon the fall of mankind that would actually redeem and save us for eternity. And Paul is trying to help the Galatians understand that plan. And it's not easy for them to understand that there's some things, roadblocks that are preventing them as it often prevents us from understanding this glorious plan that God revealed to us through the writings of the Holy Scripture penned through prophets and apostles. And so this is a great book that will teach us uh, perspectives of God's salvation plan. But before we get into the story, you know, I would like to take some time today, I hope you'd join with me in this, to pray, uh, not only for our time here together as we go through this book, but also to pray for uh, many of the folks that were um, killed in Paris here this week. It's hard to just want to go into a message without addressing that event. As far as I know, the last I heard, 129 people were killed. Among them was this young gal, Miss Gonzalez, no, Himi, I'm not sure how you pronounce her name. Uh, she was uh, studying in Paris in a restaurant there and was killed at the restaurant. And uh, just such a sad story, 23 years old, I think the only American that was killed there. But I thought we could spend time to pray for our uh, morning here and also to pray for the families uh, that have lost loved ones. And uh, boy, the evil in the world that propagates these kinds of things, you know, that's uh, just horrendous. But what do you say we just pray and, uh, and then we'll get started here. Lord, I want to thank you for this opportunity to be here with uh, loved ones, friends, family, brothers, sisters uh, in Christ. We just uh, are grateful that you give us an eternal hope in the midst of a world that is fraught with pain and suffering, evil, the kind that would even snuff out the lives of so many innocent people in a coordinated way and even boast and claim it as their own deed. It's just amazing. Lord, we pray that uh, for the salvation of those that have propagated this evil, uh, we certainly pray that uh, for judgment for what they've done. And Lord, we pray for your comfort and healing of the, those that are grieving, even as we speak here today, uh, over the loss of many loved ones. Uh, we just pray that uh, your Holy Spirit would comfort us only your spirit can. And especially for the Gonzaleses of California, and that you'd be with them and uh, encourage them in what can be such a, a sad, sad event as this. We also commit our time together as we study the scripture, and we just pray that you'd be here with us and that you'd allow us to understand your ways more today. Uh, Lord, we're interested in understanding what you want, what your will is. Uh, Lord, we're willing to even change our own in light of truths you revealed to us. Guys, we pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. 
you know, I mentioned I was going to bore you with some of my Hawaii stories, and I think I'll get those out of the way right off the bat. But years ago, I was uh, a sophomore in college. It was the summer of 1974, and I wrote uh, a cousin of mine, and uh, I just uh, asked if um, he might be aware of any jobs in Hawaii. He was a wildlife biologist for the state at that time, at the peak of his career. He's retired now, has been for years. And I asked Ron if he knew of anything. He said, well, you know, Tim, I have a pretty good relationship with ranchers uh, because uh, a lot of the game runs on their ranches and I have to moderate the game counts and so on. That's part of my job. And so Ron uh, sent the letter back and sure enough, he lined up a job that surpassed my wildest dreams. Uh, he got a job for me as a white man cowboy on the big island of Mauna Kea on the Pua Ranch. And uh, I was just thrilled. And so I decided to, to head out there that summer. And hours, several hours into the flight, I looked ahead of me and I saw this, this slide that you're seeing now. This is just when I got online. <clears throat> I didn't think fast enough taking pictures of myself at the time. But this is almost exactly how I remember that first view of Hawaii. The clouds were much more smooth, however. And when I looked ahead in the distance, I thought that what I was seeing was Hawaii. I thought that was it. And I said, well, there it is. You know, the land, and uh, it's kind of a cool little island there. And uh, little did I know that what I was seeing was not Hawaii at all. Fat Greg and Pat, all the guys, they've probably seen this view here not as well. But it was just the tip of the big mountain, Mauna Kea, on the big island. That's all that I was seeing. Uh, that portion of the mountain above the cloud line. That portion probably above the tree line which is where our poor old ranch was, by the way. But uh, that's all that I was seeing. It's pretty much a solid rock right there. And as we approached, we descended into the clouds. And all of a sudden, everything whited out. I couldn't see anything. We went a little bit further into the clouds. And after, I don't know, 30 seconds, a minute or two, we broke out under the clouds. And that's when I saw Hawaii for the first time. And it was amazing. It just expanded. The expanse of that island was amazing. Uh, it was so green and lush and beautiful. There was so much more below those clouds than I ever anticipated. And I was just committed that summer to experience that, that state um, unlike anybody ever, has ever experienced it before. And indeed, I did, uh, thanks to Ron. And uh, I spent Monday through Friday on the mountain, and then on the weekends, I went into Hilo. The first thing Ron, my cousin, said to me when I got off the plane was, Tim, you don't have to go to church, do you? Now, I was a brand new, born-again believer, I would say. And I grew up in a tradition that required that I go to church on Sundays. And my mind said, no, I don't have to go to church, but my heart kind of still felt it needed to. But I said, no, Ron, I really don't have to go to church. And he said, well, that's good, because it would really trip our style if you had to go to church. <laughs> and uh, every weekend then, we would go to one island or the other, and we'd go hunting, fishing, boating, uh, trolling, you know, snorkeling, just you name it. And uh, we truly began to experience that country, or uh, unlike uh, I ever dreamed I, I would have. And so, uh, some of the things we saw when I looked under the clouds was more or less this site. Again, this is just online, a blurry, a blurry picture, but it was huge. It was expansive. It was green. That's Mauna Kea. It means white mountain. It has snow much, much of the time. Uh, this was our little ranch that I lived on. It's above the tree line. It's above the cloud uh, ceiling. And it's in a puka, they call it in Hawaiian, which means uh, a circle or a clearing. It's just completely surrounded uh, by, by lava. So it's like a, the donut uh, hole of a donut. And that's where we stayed for that summer. And during the summer, our job was to build a corral. So we'd get on our horses and we'd ride a couple hours and we'd have to cut down those trees in the background to make the post. And we'd only work about four hours a day. It wasn't like growing up on a farm in Iowa, John. Uh, you work four hours a day, you're on a horse four hours a day. Two hours there, two hours of that. And, uh, but it was just a beautiful thing to live in the mountains. This is my horse, my only means of uh, transportation for the summer. I'm shooing the horse here. Her name's Old Lady. Uh, I was the low guy on the totem. Uh, the guy they called Howley Boy. 
um, which is a derogatory term in Hawaii. I won't say what it means. I never found out what it means. Uh, but anyway, we uh, enjoyed that on the weekend. We would go and do all kinds of things. Uh, Kilauea erupted one weekend, went up there and saw Kilauea. Uh, this is my tip for those hunters that are here today. Ron promised me a tick attack in the toe. And my tip was this goat on Mauna Loa. And again, we would spend the whole weekend up there and hunt and do all kinds of things. This is my toe, uh, a pig's head. And uh, we had a bunch of those. Ticks and tacks, uh, this is my tag. Uh, ticks and tacks were very easy. The toes were tough, but this is my toe. I got both of those deer at the same time. One kneeling down, I stood up and got the second one. And that was on the island of Molokai. And uh, we, again, just lived out there these, uh, for the weekends. And then we had boats, uh, troll, fish. Uh, there I am pulling a coconut off a coconut tree. You don't want to slip on those things, because uh, that would be very painful. And, uh, but here's on top of Hayakala on Maui. You can see the big island in the background. On the left there in the background, you'll see Mauna Kea, the mountain that I worked on to the right, Mauna Loa. That's the corner side of the big island. Uh, what a beautiful, beautiful view that was of things. And uh, just incredible. But to think that I thought this was Hawaii when I first saw it. And then to experience so much more of what it really involved. The food was incredible. Uh, the people, I was on the local uh, volleyball team, the Wahukas, that meant running water every weekend play our volleyball games. I felt a part of the community. It was just really, really an experience. And, uh, but most of what I knew as Hawaii was underneath those clouds. And what I first initially saw was just that little bit of tip above the, the clouds initially. And really that's in our series on Galatians is what we're really wanting to do here, what Paul was wanting to do with the Galatians. They just had a little bit of knowledge above those clouds. And it wasn't enough to even help them be grounded in their faith. So when people came and began to tell them other things that Paul was telling them, they began to believe it. And they began to follow those things. And Paul was wanting to take them through the clouds and under the clouds where they could see the expanse of God's truth as it relates to salvation. That's what this book is written about. There's three books that fall under the category, they call it soteriology, which means the doctrine of salvation. One is the book of Romans that Paul wrote, one is the book of James that James wrote, and one is the book of Galatians that we're studying right now. Those are the three books. Though many books talk about this subject, those three books focus on this subject. God's redemptive plan for mankind. And this is a hard subject for me to teach on. Because many of you, many of you do not believe what Galatians says is God's salvation plan. I don't think. I, and it's hard for me and because I don't want to be confronted in any way. I don't want to share something that uh, would cause consternation or cause conflict. I'm actually a very peaceful person uh, that uh, likes to have a good relationship with everybody. Um, but I'm going to do my best to be faithful to what I believe this book teaches. We must understand in order to have eternal life. It's a very critical book uh, that uh, God put in that New Testament for us. So today we're going to roll up our sleeves and do our best. And to kind of kick things off, I'd like to uh, talk about what I was informed of by August and his dad there, Rob, last Sunday. Uh, they were telling me what the team groups were going through this recently. It's a book entitled, I like the title of it, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. But in that book, the author talks about four reasons why we believe what we believe. Four reasons why we believe what we believe. It doesn't even matter what religion we're talking about here. It doesn't even matter what it is you're believing in for, say, life after death uh, as a religion. But... This, these four points are, are the basis for why people believe whatever it is they believe, okay? So one of the basis is sociological. And what that is is basically saying is, because my parents, because my grandparents, because my uh, you know, great-great-grandparents were of a certain religion, therefore I will be of that religion also. Like so it's a sociological basis to believe what we believe. Is this thing falling off of me? Oh, thanks a lot. Appreciate that. All 
Alrighty. I guess that does help. Okay. Do I need to repeat everything I do? No. Uh, I'm going to keep going. By the way, my mom's here today. Uh, I'd like to have. Uh, you always know when I'm speaking, his mom's here. And uh, in three weeks, my mother will hit 100 years of age. But anyway, we'll move on uh, with our series. So sociologically, uh, people will believe, I remember as a freshman at Iowa State, I, I was at the union and the guy asked me, complete stranger, he said, what's your name? I said, Tim Cavanaugh. He said, well, you must be Catholic. And uh, I thought, wow, that's a big jump. And, uh, but not really. It's an Irish name. He recognized it as such. Someone this week uh, said, hey, uh, I heard Paul Ryan is Catholic. And that makes perfect sense. Ryan is a temporary name. Aaron may know that. She's from Northern Ireland, I know. But uh, it's, a, it's a temporary name. And uh, yeah, you would expect people from Southern Ireland to be Catholic. If you went to Saudi Arabia, you'd expect people to be Muslim. If you went to China before the revolution, you'd expect them to be Buddhist. If you went after the revolution, you might expect them either to be atheists or Christians because Christianity is booming in China. So it's kind of interesting. There's these sociological reasons people believe what they believe. And a lot of times when they leave that faith basis that they were born into, uh, they can be incur all kinds of persecution. I've seen many religions do it. I've seen a friend of mine who was Jewish who became Christian. And after that, uh, his family completely disowned him. It was very, very difficult uh, for him uh, in that sense. And you know, Paul was someone like that. Here's where we begin learning a little bit about Paul. He was Jewish. It's said that, that he was advancing in Judaism beyond all of his contemporaries. He was a Pharisee. He was a leader among leaders. He was one of the cream of the crop of Jewish leadership in the first century. And yet he became a Christian on the road to Damascus. And Paul, after becoming a Christian, he left his faith. He did receive a lot of persecution as well. But this man who had it made, you might say, he said he considered it all loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus himself. He considered all those traditions he had and beliefs he had and the life he had loss. And actually, in the Greek, it's dumb. He considered it nerve. If you the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. And Paul wanted to take this message and advance this message, you know, to the Galatians. God's salvation message. The one that he came to understand. There's other reasons why we believe what we believe, though. One is psychological. This is just kind of because you want to believe it. I met a, a guy this past week whose wife uh, is being visited regularly by Mormons. Uh, he doesn't like it, but she likes it. They had a son that committed suicide 19 years ago, and they're still torn up about it. He was 19 years old when he committed suicide. But the Mormons have told her, if you become a Mormon and uh, the, you know, convert to Mormonism, uh, then you can actually be baptized for your son, ensuring his salvation. That's what they're telling her. And because of that, she wants to become a Mormon. My friend was saying that of his wife. Why? For a psychological reason. She wants to believe that. It doesn't even matter if it's true or not. She wants to believe it for these psychological reasons. You know, there can be religious reasons we believe things we believe. You know, maybe our religion simply says. I remember growing up and uh, uh, our, our uh, Catholic religion in those days, uh, that was pre-Vatican II, uh, but our Catholic religion in those days taught that we shouldn't eat meat on Fridays. And uh, being meat producers ourselves, uh, my dad raised cattle. We had 12 fed out 1,200 head a year. But uh, we ate fish. Mom made fish on Friday nights. And sometimes they'd call us fish eaters, you know, those Catholics and fish eaters. And, uh, but after Vatican II, uh, that, the, the, our religion changed that. And we could start eating meat again. After every Friday night football game, I went out to the shed where we had a big freezer, grabbed a steak and had a steak after every football game after that. And so I changed my view on that completely. Psychologically, for one reason. <laughs> but also, my religion had changed and made a change. And so I accepted that change as my own at that time. So there are these religious reasons. There's also, though, philosophical reasons. 
And that's what we're really after here. It's kind of long, weird, that philosophical. I don't like it real well, but it's the fourth point that man in the book made is that for a Christian, when you believe the Bible is the Word of God, then the Scripture becomes the philosophical basis for what we believe. What does the scripture say is what we will believe, in other words. That's the philosophical reason for what we might believe. And you know, it's tough. You know, I'm sure I've got all kinds of sociological and psychological and other, you know, logicals, you know, that tint the lens of my glasses that I see reality through. But I will try as I may, and you'll need to try as you can, to not allow the tint of our glasses to determine the faith that we subscribe to, but let's, as Christians, allow the Scripture to speak to us. And Galatians is God's effort, God's attempt, through Paul, to reveal to us all what the basis of salvation really is. And that's what we have to work toward today, to see what the Scripture actually says in, in this series. This is the area of Galatia, uh, modern-day Turkey. Uh, it's kind of an interesting area. There's four major towns in south-central Turkey, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derby. They constitute the major cities of this province in what was Asia Minor, today is Turkey. And that area of Galatia is really a unique group, demographic of people. The word Galatia comes from the word Gaul. And of course, uh, those of you that may know it, some ancient history, France used to be called Gaul. Uh, they are the same people group. They're the same people group as the Irish, the Scotch, and the Welsh, all descendants of Gael, or the Gauls. And in fact, I remember reading in National Geographic about the Galatians in Turkey, even in modern days, who speak Gaelic. You can imagine that. So it was a very similar people group. I'm sure their languages has changed some, but that was the people. Some of these people were Greeks, some of them were Jews. Timothy, uh, Paul's right-hand man, he met him in Galatia. His mother was Jewish, his father was Greek. So you see in his family alone, both uh, religions in that one family. Paul was very familiar with this area. He had gone to Jerusalem, long and short, was persecuting Christians on the road to Damascus for that purpose. It was there that God revealed himself to Paul and he became a follower of Jesus. And then he moved to Antioch. And it was from Antioch that his first missionary journey, what you're looking at now, that was staged from Antioch. And then he did his second journey, his third and his fourth missionary journeys. And on uh, all, all these journeys, Paul had and was driven to accomplish something. He was fighting for the souls of these people. He wanted these people saved. He wanted these people to understand God's message of salvation. There is only one gospel. There is no other. The God that created the universe is one God. There's not many gods with many gospels. And this God sent Jesus to this earth to die for us. Jesus, being God himself, the Son of God, came to earth to die on that cross for us. Paul was bent to share this. And he was committed. He died with his head removed from his body. He had very little worldly wealth when he passed away. I was watching a movie on Netflix this week on the riches of Hitler. I didn't realize he was a billionaire when he passed away. He tried to make himself out as, you know, just kind of a lowly German, uh, just committed to uh, the Mein Kampf philosophy. In fact, when he became, you know, the leader of Germany, he passed a law where the German government had to pay for every German couple getting married. They received a copy of his book, Mein Kampf, on the day of the he got 10% of all the proceeds. But that's a lot of money. And it's great to have the government to provide those books, you know, to all these people. You know, Hitler uh, made out pretty well, you know, financially. Not in the end, but financially. Unlike Paul, you know, who truly was. Uh, Hitler tried to seem like he was part of the people and for the people, but he really wasn't. Whereas Paul really was that kind of leader laid it on the line. He was from Tarsus. 
Tarsus was only about 100 miles from Galatia. So this is an area Paul knew really well, kind of like his backyard. You can imagine that might be one of the reasons why he went on this particular area for his first missionary journey. But you know, the problem is, there was a group of people called Judaizers that were following Paul on every one of his missionary journeys. That red line that you just saw on his first missionary journey, there were people called Judaizers who had the same red line on their journey. Because they followed Paul wherever he went. And they tried to change what Paul was saying. They were people who would say, yes, you could believe in Jesus. But you also must be circumcised and obey and follow all the laws of Judaism. You must be a Jew and a Christian both if you're to follow God. That's what they were saying. And again, Paul hated that message. He said anything added to Jesus is nothing. He said Jesus plus anything is nothing. Jesus plus nothing is everything. That was Paul's message. And for those who couldn't understand it's because all they could see of Jesus was the tip of that mountain above the clouds. There's so much more to Jesus. There is so much more to Jesus. And when we understand how much more then what Paul is saying in Galatians makes perfect sense. But he was trying to communicate to these folks with these Judaizers, and Paul just hated it. We've already looked at this. This is in a way by way of review in Galatians chapter 1, 9, and we're through chapter 2 now. If anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you receive from me, Paul said, let him be accursed. Let him be eternally damned is what the word accursed means. That's how much Paul hated adding anything to Jesus for salvation. And that's what this book was about. Here's another verse. If you become circumcised, which is what these Jews were wanting, uh, these Judaizers were wanting Paul's converts to do. And he said, well, Christ will be of no benefit to you. They're mutually exclusive. Faith in Jesus versus faith in works don't go together. They're mutually exclusive. And Paul is saying, look, there's two ways to go to heaven. One way is to obey the law perfectly, because God is perfect. And if you want to be in heaven with an eternally perfect God, then don't make any mistakes. But if you've made a mistake, then you need to accept Jesus as your Savior. If you become circumcised, though, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. The second way of salvation, being perfect. Of course, none of us can be. We've got to turn to God's remedy for our sin, Jesus. These are very strong words, aren't they, that Paul is saying here. And also later in verse 12, I could wish that those who trouble you, these Judaizers, would even cut themselves off. Now again, Paul is one of these guys, you still learn so much about his personality too in the words he chooses. Because in Greek, that word cut off, uh, uh, in Greek, the word cut off sometimes is translated different ways, mutilate, uh, but the word is castrate. He wanted them to just castrate themselves. Hey, if you want to get circumcised, great, go ahead and I just wish they'd be castrated along with it because I don't want them to be able to propagate this message that they're propagating anymore. You know, circumcision can still be very important to Jews in these days, Orthodox Jews. In fact, uh, I was good friends with two Jewish guys here in town, Charles Fetter, Gary Fetter. They sold a business of theirs to a cousin of mine, uh, Star Industrial Rags. Uh, they, they produced rags. And they moved back to Hebron, Israel after selling the business. But uh, they have a cousin that I met numerous times. Uh, Rabbi Fetter here in Denver, and he does almost all the circumcisions in town. And uh, I asked a Jewish guy that I just met this week, I said, did you know this Rabbi Fetter? He said, I don't really know him well, uh, but I have seen some of his work, he said. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, anyway, Rabbi Fetter, uh, he is the guy that does many circumcisions even here in Denver in these days. So this is something that's carried on over the years. Paul hated though the perversion of the gospel, but it was so hard for people to understand how faith and works go together in God's salvation plan. 
And I think it's something we're struggling with today. It's something they struggled with then. It's something they struggled with in the Reformation era as well. Christianity teaches, the Bible teaches, Galatians teaches, it is by faith in Jesus alone that we are saved. Religions teach you must either do good works to get to heaven or add good works to your faith in Christ to get to heaven. Romans teaches that it's by faith alone. Galatians says it is not by faith plus works, it's by faith alone. But it is confusing. If you're 51% good as a Muslim, you're going to be with Allah. If you're 51% good karma, instead of bad karma, uh, you'll be in nirvana. These are religions and they're works-based. And you put your good works on a scale as that religion defines good works. And if it outweighs the bad works, then you're going to go to their concept of heaven, whatever it is. That's religion. Christianity is different than any religion because it's God coming to us, God saving us, not we working our way toward God, trying to save ourselves. That's what this book is saying in Galatians. But it's so confusing. It is hard. I know it is for us because, you know, you study hard and you get an A. That's what we've been brought up to think. You work really hard to get a promotion. That's what we think here on this earth is how the world works. But don't think that it just costs nothing. I heard a guy say to me once, in, as I was sharing this thing, Tim, it just doesn't seem right. What you're saying is you can get something for nothing. Do you think the death of Jesus on the cross is nothing? That's something. But it's everything, too. If Jesus died on the cross, there's nothing more to add to that. So it's difficult. And Paul is trying to set the record straight to the Galatians that it's by faith alone, not by faith and works. It's a problem that continued. And right up to the Reformation, it continued in the 1500s. It really split the church in a way in those days. The Reformation, uh, as you may recall, one of the big leaders was a guy named Martin Luther, a Catholic priest, who loved being a part of the Catholic tradition but wanted to reform it. In those days, there was a need to. Uh, the Catholic Church had gone way beyond those days. But in those days, there was a corrupt Pope, Leo X. He was very corrupt. He spent the fortune, or not the fortune, but the, the coffers of the Vatican and uh, the building of St. Peter's Basilica had to come to a complete stop. There was no more money for it. Tetzel was an individual who came around and had an idea. He said, look, let's go and sell indulgences. We'll go throughout Europe and we'll uh, just... Tell folks, look, uh, you know, for so much money, we'll give you a certificate and it works. You know, we'll give you time off of uh, purgatory or your loved one's time off of purgatory. The selling of indulgences was one of the 95 reforms that Martin Luther wanted to introduce into the church in those days. It was starting to affect his own church congregation. People were influenced by these things. And so Luther and many others joined in, of course, History has, you know, shown us that a big movement started that drew many people out of the Catholic Church. It was called the Reformation. And their motto was solo fidelis, which means saved by only by faith. There was a counter-reformation in those days, too. And this counter-reformation was in response to the Reformation. And it was the intent of the Catholic Church in the counter-reformation to distinguish itself from the Reformers. And really to kind of cut the bleeding of sorts. And so some of the things that they did was they added the apocryphal books to the scripture. They started the Jesuit movement, an evangelistic kind of a movement. They started other things. They, uh, they also defined what they believed to be saving faith. And that is faith plus works is what would save us. That was declared in the Council of Trent between 1545 and 1563. In those 18 years, the Council met. And in the Council of Trent, uh, you'll see then two big traditions, one saying faith and work saves, and the other saying, no, it's faith only that saves. And I'm not wanting to, you know, pick on any particular church tradition, especially one that I respect as much as the Catholic Church for standing up so strong to so many values that I believe in. But in Vatican II, this basic thought was continued. And I was a sophomore in high school during Vatican II. 
this is from the dogmatic constitution of the church, Vatican II. Those who, through no fault of their own, do not know the gospel of Christ or his church, but who nevertheless seek God with a sincere heart and move by grace, try in their actions to do his will as they know it through the dictates of their conscience. Those two may achieve eternal salvation. Nor shall divine providence deny the assistance necessary for salvation to those who, without any fault of theirs, have not yet arrived at an explicit knowledge of God and who, not without grace, strive to lead a good life. I think Paul would disagree with this. This is suggesting that some can earn their way to heaven through good works as long as they sincerely believe those good works can earn their way to heaven. I disagree with this. Uh, though I agree with other things within the Catholic tradition. I'm just saying, on this particular very important issue, this sounds like the same issue the Galatians were dealing with to some measure. The theme of Galatians is Jesus plus nothing is everything. The theme of Galatians is Jesus plus anything is nothing. Oh, it's tough though, isn't it? This is a tough one for me to speak on. Because I believe that is exactly what Galatians teaches in verses like this. And this is where we left off last week. For I through the law died to the law. That I might live to God. The law meaning all those things we must do. Those things that would define us as a good person. Being circumcised. Eating the right kind of foods. Not eating the wrong kind of foods as a Jew. You know, all these different things. I have been crucified, Paul writes to the Galatians, with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, comes through doing good deeds, then Christ died in vain. There's no reason for him to die. To understand what Paul is saying here, that salvation is not by faith and work, but by faith alone, you've got to understand Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith. That's not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. It is not of works, so that no one can boast. This verse is one of the first verse I ever read in the Bible. I never really had much exposure to the scripture until a freshman in college and someone pointed this verse out to me, and I said, wait a minute. I believe you get to heaven by living a good life. In fact, he asked me, how do you get to heaven? And I, I clutched my fist, I shook it up and down. I can still feel myself saying it. By living a good life, I'll go to heaven. And then he said, well, let me show you this verse. And this is where my sociological basis for faith was now being challenged through a philosophical basis of scripture. For by grace, Tim, you've been saved through faith, not of yourself. It is not of God. It's not of works, rather. It's the gift of God, not of works, so that you can't boast. And all of a sudden, there's a conflict here between a philosophical basis for it, salvation through faith, and my sociological basis for believing what I believe. And you know what? It was a, it was a collision. It was a confrontation there. Because they're mutually exclusive. And I had to decide which was true. For me, I had to change my thinking from thinking that what I grew up to believe was not accurate in this area. And I simply had to transfer my trust from me living a good life to what Jesus did on the cross. And their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now, where there is forgiveness of these things, there's no longer an offering for sin. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Everyone who believes in Jesus receives the forgiveness of sins. Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in turn. While suffering, he uttered no threats. But kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually strained like sheep. But now you've returned to the shepherd and the guardian of your soul. He having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time. Past, present, and future sat down at the right hand of God. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. I saw this philosophical basis 
I had no choice but to change my sociological basis of faith to this. By golly, Jesus died for all my sins, once for all. I know he died for all my sins up to today, but what about the ones tomorrow? Yeah, no, he died for those too. 2,000 years ago, they were all future. And Jesus died for all those sins. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ because the condemnation has already been met by Jesus. He was condemned. He died on the cross. The wages of sin being death, he died. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. The verses go on and on and on. The reason we have struggle with accepting that Jesus is everything, that Jesus plus nothing is everything, is because all we're seeing of Jesus is what sticks out above the clouds. We really fail to see the fullness of who he is. He is eternal God in human flesh that died on the cross for all sin, for all time. There's nothing we can add to that. And yet this is what the Galatians were struggling. And it's what the Reformers struggled. It's what many of us struggle today. We also need to understand our sin. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ. For you were dead in your sins and trespasses in which you formerly walked. See, you're not sick when you're a sinner. You're dead. You're completely dead, completely cut off, completely separated from God. No amount of going to church or trying to be nice is going to help you be alive again. God's got to make you alive. He's got to redeem you, which is what only Jesus can do. And again, people have a hard time understanding the message of Galatians because when they see sin, they're understanding sin. All they see is a little bit of mouth above the clouds. They don't think sin is as deadly as it is. And that only Jesus can satisfy it. It's kind of like, here's a check. You can write it out for whatever you want. Jesus a blank check. Okay, I'm going to write it out for, well, everything I can believe Jesus for for my salvation, I'll write it out for that, a thousand bucks. Jesus said, okay, that's great. And then you sound like you still have some stuff that you feel you can have to add works to then. Uh, that's going to cost you a million bucks. <laughs> I mean, it's going to cost you way more. Even for that portion of your life that you want to work toward earning salvation, the cost is way too high. It says it's way too high. The price for redemption is blood. It's, it's a death, an eternal death, which has separated us, our sin, from an eternal God. Moving on, though, I'm just going to conclude the best I can with these three books of summary. Romans, which teaches his faith alone. James says faith will have works, and Galatians it says his faith alone as well. So in Romans, Paul appeals to Abraham. He says, what shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. Well, there's, I'm not going to be able to stand for God that I was a pretty good guy, because I wasn't. In fact, Abraham was justified, if Abraham was in fact justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God and justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. And then he goes to another example that the Jews would respect, David. And they quote David who said, blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against him. This after committing murder, after committing adultery with Bathsheba, and then having her husband murdered. David recognized even then the forgiveness of God. James appeals to Abraham also. But see, the problem that people begin to say is, well, if what you're saying to him is true, then I can just go off and do anything I want to do. I can go off and just kill somebody, right? And that's what James addresses. James is saying the same thing as Paul, but he's saying that true faith will have good works with it, like an apple tree. It will have apples. But you don't need the apples to be an apple tree. You don't need works to be saved. You just need faith. But the works will follow. 
You foolish person, jumping down to verse 20, do you want evidence of faith without deeds is useless? He goes on and gives the example of Abraham sacrificing his son. And Abraham demonstrated his faith by sacrificing his son. I'd be willing to. But faith without works, as James says, is dead. It's no faith at all. The best example I have of that is my own son. He was sitting right over there one Sunday morning in this church. And uh, he, he got fairly rebellious and delved into some dark things in life. And sitting over there, he got up one day, I didn't know why, but he got up and left. And he didn't come back for a long time. And he said, Dad, I just realized, I don't believe a thing that you guys are sitting out there. It's just not anything I believe in. And I'm not going to be a hypocrite. And he walked out of church. And he remained out of church for a long time and delved into some dark things for quite a long time. And then last year, he, he moved to Seattle. And he said when he landed, when that airplane landed on the ta ta Tamar, uh, Tarmac, <laughs> I start speaking in tongues up here sometimes. <laughs> landed on that Tarmac. He said that he sensed this verse that he'd heard as a kid. If you seek me, you will find me. And Ryan said, Dad, I just decided to see him. He got a job. He had to walk five miles each way each day. And he began uh, doing that. Uh, Victor and Daisy, you know Ryan. I mean, he was in the church with you in Los Angeles for that last summer. But, but he would walk. He would just read the scripture, listen to messages. Guys like Tozer. I mean, these are old-time, you know, Christian kind of guys. I call them... Those are close. I mean, this guy's supposed to sleep every time. But man, I was getting him up. And uh, all these other guys. And he's reading the scripture. He'd go in his little room. It wasn't even a room, it was a closet. He had 100 bucks a month. He said, yeah, well, that's pretty cheap. And he would go up there and he would just weep. He would just cry. And then one night he said, Dad, I just broke through. All of a sudden, I came off from under those clouds. All I saw of Jesus was, was that little mountain. I went through those clouds and then I saw him. I saw Jesus and all that he is. I'm going to tell you right now, Ryan is a changed man. He's been completely converted. But he said, Dad, the reason I knew I wasn't saved was because I looked at my life and my life did not show the deeds of faith. And the worst thing that keeps people from becoming Christians, Ron Ryan would say, is thinking you are one. And he said, but when I realized that, looking at verses like James, I can't have faith given the kind of life I'm living. And that's when he got up and walked out. But now he's walking back to that. I'm grateful to say he's, he's a preacher on college campuses now for this year, sharing his faith with people on college settings. And it's God that saved him. But change is true. Faith without works is dead, and Ryan knew it. He recognized it. And that's what helped him understand he wasn't a Christian. He got a good but he was saying it was his faith alone that saved him. He knew all the answers. He could tell you about Jesus. Because he sat a little bit above the clouds. But when he accepted Jesus, he saw Jesus in his fullness that night. So James is saying his faith is that engine, works is the produce. And uh, it's not fatal. Sorry about that. Appreciate that, Zach. I want to let my very best friends do that. It's kind of a very personal thing. Anyway. So, I'm going to just kind of summarize here in Galatians chapter 3, my assigned passage for today. And this is what Paul continues in this book. Oh, you foolish Galatians. I got you going right, but look what you've done. Who has bewitched you that you should now should not obey the truth that I taught you? Before whose eyes Jesus was clearly portrayed among you as crucified. This only I want to learn from you. Galatians chapter 3 verse 2. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Well, hearing with faith. We, we heard your message. We believed it. And our lives were changed. Paul's reminding them of that. Are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now wanting to become perfect by the flesh, getting circumcised and all? Have you suffered so many things in vain? Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by works of the law or by simply hearing with faith? Well, hearing with faith. 
And just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted in his righteousness, therefore know that only those who are faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseen that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preach the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed, so that those who are faith are blessed with Abraham the believer. For as many as are of the works of the law, those folks, if they believe in heaven is through the world, they're actually under a curse that is written. Curses everyone who does not continue in all the things that are written in the book of the law to do them. Got to be perfect. We got to accept Christ. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident. For the just shall live by faith. Yet the law is not of faith. But the man who does them shall live by them. They're justification by faith, justification by um, the works are mutually exclusive. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. That the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith in Jesus. And so, it's not faith plus works. Faith will have works. But through the law, we died in the law that we might live to God. I've been crucified. It is no longer I live. Christ lives in me. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me on that cross, died for my sins. I do not set aside God's grace in this. I will not diminish it. I will not reduce it. I embrace it fully. That blank check, I'm going to write it out for infinite forgiveness. Because he's got that much forgiveness to give. Which leaves me with nothing to pay for myself. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. Indeed, Jesus plus nothing is everything. And so, the real question for us is if you're adding anything to your faith in Jesus, this is your Jesus. What you see above the God. If you add anything to Jesus, what he did on the cross, that's your Jesus. Is that the Jesus you want? Or will you join with Paul's cry and join those who follow Paul's admonition to go under those clouds and embrace Jesus in his fullness, knowing that he died for all of your sins and it's by faith alone that you're saved. And just like with my son Ryan, his life is different. But it's not because he's trying to be better. His life is different because he has true faith. Something he did not have last year. Let's pray and ask God to guide us, lead us into truth. Lovingly go hand in hand with those that even disagree with us. But just endeavoring as we can to embrace the revealed words of God which have instructed us what's involved in saving faith. Lord, we just thank you again for this day. Lord, I, uh, I just pray that uh, this message would be understood and embraced by folks that Jesus is the answer, that Jesus died for all of our sins, past, present, and future. Faith in Jesus alone is saving faith. And the good works will come like a caboose follows the engine of faith. Lord, help us not be deceived to think that we need to add anything to what Jesus did. Help us not diminish Jesus, but only see more fully than we do at this time. We just want to thank you for each person here. Bless us all in Jesus' name. Amen.